Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 57 of Goodwill Hunters. This is a really exciting episode. I'm chatting to the Honourable Pat Conroy. Pat is the member for Shortland in New South Wales, and he's also the Shadow Minister for International Development and the Pacific, the Shadow Minister Assisting for Climate Change, and the Shadow Minister Assisting for Defence. He has held the portfolio since June of 2019. In this episode, Pat responds to the comments made by Minister Alex Hawke on this show a few weeks back. We chat about the intersection of our aid program and climate change, the consequences of reducing our aid budget along with our presence in many regions of the world, the focus on infrastructure in the Pacific, matters of national security and regional stability, and a lot more. As you would know, it's a really pivotal time to be discussing aid and what our new aid policy should look like. The ALP and the Coalition have different perspectives on our aid program, and I hope that through these episodes we can unpack what those differences are and contribute to a more informed debate on how we can maximise our impact overseas. As always, enjoy the episode. All right, so uh, you have been in your role as the Shadow Minister for International Development, as well as the Shadow Minister Assisting for Climate Change and the Shadow Minister Assisting for Defence um, for a little while now. So that's that's a number of portfolios to cover. What's been your experience so far in the role? It's been awesome. Uh, people say that when you're involved in international development in the Pacific, you, you catch the bug, you become an enthusiast for it, and I've caught the bug. It is something where it's an immense privilege to be trying to develop policy to improve the lives of so many people. So it's a a privilege. So that's a number of portfolios to be working across. What does the intersection of development, defence and climate change mean to you? Well, it it was an intentional uh, uh, linking of those three portfolios. So I'm I'm International Development in the Pacific, which uh, uh, obviously go hand in hand uh, and so um, Anthony Albanese, when he gave me these portfolios, I asked for them and he was very clear that there was a real intention to combine them because they are uh, immensely interlinked. For example, you can't talk about international development and uh, the Pacific, for example, without talking about climate change, that they are interwoven and it's certainly one of the criticisms we have of the government that they don't address climate change uh, as it pertains to those issues. And uh, defence is obviously linked both in assistance in both international development and the Pacific, but uh, more rel- relevantly, I'm very interested in pursuing uh, a national security justification for overseas aid. That's different from securitising aid, and that's an issue we should be concerned about, but there are very strong national security justifications for a, a healthy aid budget. Okay, so you've mentioned two things there that it would be great to unpack. The the first of all is the criticism of the current government on the interlinkage between climate and aid. Um, We did discuss in our recent episode with Minister Alex Hawke the $500 million of climate funding allocated to the Pacific. Can you comment on on that approach to climate and aid? 
Well, we're trying to get the details of what they actually intend to spend that money on because it's very unclear. Typically, from this government, we just see a media release and not much more information than that. The first point I make is uh, all that money appears to be drawn from existing aid budgets, and that's the the sort of the MO of this government. They've cut $11.8 billion from the aid budget since uh, 2013, and every announcement of additional aid in the Pacific has come at the expense of the broader aid budget. Uh, and so that's our greatest concern. It's not so much on what the $500 million will do, although um, we would be concerned if it's going into uh, infrastructure projects that would be inappropriate, but it's the fact that it's coming at the expense of other programs. I guess that's a good time to ask then. I mean, Labor has called for uh, the cuts to aid to stop. Mm. Um, what's the ideal aid budget for you? Well, at, at the policy we took to the last election and what is in our national platform is a commitment to lift the aid budget to 0.5% of GNI. Uh, and, and our election commitment was to uh, lift the aid budget every year to, to reach the 0.5%. So for me, that's an important reference point. Obviously, uh, we have the broader UN uh, goals of 0.7% of GNI. Uh, but uh, I'd make the case that given at the moment we're down at 0.21 uh, and it's going to be 0.19 by the end of this term, lifting it to 0.5% would be a massive achievement. Yes, but at the last election, we had a commitment of lifting um, aid to 0.5% of GNI and um, that was costed in our budget documents. And, and the broader point that I'd make about the government's cuts is that their sole justification for cutting the aid budget was that the the budget was in deficit, uh, and that they they wouldn't justify or wouldn't support an aid budget funded by debt, and that's their words. Well, as I made a point in a recent ACFID speech, uh, they claim that the budget will be balanced this year and in surplus next year. That removes the only justification they have for having such a low aid budget. Yeah, yeah, I think I heard that speech at the at the recent ACFID aid conference, mm. wasn't it? Yes, that's that's right. Um, okay, so staying on the point of the Pacific then, it, it has been a good week um, for the Parliamentary Pacific Friends Initiative, which is a, a cross-parliamentary initiative supporting the Pacific, which I believe you played a key role in setting up. So could you first comment on that initiative um, and then perhaps share your thoughts on the, the Pacific step up more broadly? Mm, yeah, sure. So it, in the Australian Parliament, you have parliamentary friendship groups. They're, they're bipartisan friendship groups to show parliamentary support for important causes. They could be, um, for example, I'm, I'm in parliamentary friends of uh, fighting TB. There's parliamentary friends of sporting groups. But we had a bit of a hole in that we had no parliamentary friendship group in support of the Pacific. So we, uh, I came together as a convener uh, with uh, David Sharma, the, uh, the new uh, MP for Wentworth, Worth to form Parliamentary Friends of the Pacific, and we had our launch on Monday, uh, and uh, we had both uh, Anthony Albanese, the Labor leader, and the Prime Minister doing the launch, and we had uh, a large delegation of Pacific faith leaders there as well, and the, there would have been at least uh, 40 or 50 members of Parliament in the room for the launch, which is very significant. I, I, I said at the time it was honestly the, the biggest launch I've seen of a Parliamentary Friendship Group, and that demonstrates the bipartisan commitment for the Pacific and the Pacific Step Up. And look, um, I think the Pacific Step Up is welcome. Uh, to some extent, it uh, reflects the fact that the Abbott 
uh, Turnbull Morrison governments had left a void in the Pacific when they came to power. They they degraded and downgraded the role of um, Minister for the Pacific. They'd obviously cut significant aid budget. They had a climate policy that was, quite frankly, offensive to the Pacific. So the Pacific step up is an, an attempt by the government to repair that relationship. And we support it uh, effectively because we do need to repair our relationship with the Pacific. But uh, I've made the point, as has um, Albo, that um, those efforts will be undermined if we don't get serious about climate policy. We've signed up with the rest of the Pacific to the Bow Declaration that states that the number one existential threat to all Pacific nations, including Australia, is climate change. So for us then to have a climate policy completely inconsistent with the Paris Treaty, as the current government does, undermines the Pacific step up. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about climate change because obviously that's a very significant part of your role. Um, certainly on uh, the Q&A episode this week with Minister Alex Hawke as well as um, the former Prime Minister of Tuvalu, NLA Sopoago, it was clear that uh, the majority of the questions related to the topic of climate change mm. and specifically comparing Australian responses to things like resettling climate refugees to that of New Zealand. Um so on that note, what would be an appropriate humanitarian response to the Pacific when we're talking about climate change? Well, the, the, the first and most important response is to um, commit to uh, targets consistent with the Paris Treaty. And um, Labor's policy at your last election was uh, a reduction in our emissions by minus 45% or by 45% by 2030 on a path to net zero emissions by 2050. That is the most important thing. We need to stop global warming. We need to restrict it to well below two degrees if um, we are to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And the impacts of climate change will be disproportionately felt by poorer nations, particularly in the Pacific. I think um, the, the figure is uh, uh, the highest point in Tuvalu, for example, is only um, one and a half metres above sea level. You've got other low-lying nations that face being wiped out. So our first and most important task is to commit to genuine targets. The second one is then to have policies to achieve those targets. And I think th that's the main frustration uh, that the Pacific has with Australia is that we're not committing to real targets and then we don't actually have policies to achieve even the government's inadequate targets. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think the other interesting topic that came up um, in the Q&A episode was around whether or not there should be a focus on resettlement or whether resettlement assumes that we're not going to stop climate change in the region um, and, and does it therefore kind of stop efforts to actually curb carbon emissions and refocus on, on just resettling people, assuming they won't have homes in the next decade. Where do you stand on that debate? Well, I... To be frank, I think we're going to have to prepare to do both. We're not going to be able to restrict global warming to below one and a half degrees. The fight is to keep it as close to one and a half degrees as possible. So there are some Pacific Island nations that um, are going to lose significant amounts of their territory and some of them may be rendered unsustainable. Um, the chief of the Australian Defence Force, Angus Campbell, gave a seminal speech on this topic a few months ago where he highlighted the millions of climate change refugees that will be flowing around the world. So we have to prepare for that at the same time as we fight climate change. Interestingly, when I've talked to Pacific leaders, firstly, they're very much focused on keeping their nations alive, and that's very important. Secondly, where there is going to be um, 
relocation refugees first they'll go to other parts of those nations and then they're more likely to flow to larger pacific island nations closer to their homes that um, have um, uh, similar cultures so i don't think you're going to see thousands of refugees coming directly to australia or, or even new zealand i think what you're going to see is refugees um, turning up in countries like fiji vanuatu potentially even papua new guinea nations that already have grave challenges. So um, we have to be very careful about having a responsible and reasonable and realistic debate around this area. Now, of course, you speak to a lot of Pacific Island leaders in your role, as well as I imagine um, Pacific communities generally. What is the general sentiment that you hear about about attitudes towards Australia on topics like climate change and our aid program? Well, I think on climate change, there's intense frustration uh, uh, about it and um, a degree of uh, insult being recorded by the attitudes of people like uh, Scott Morrison and Michael McCormack's disgraceful comments after the last PIF. On our aid uh, budget, I think they're they're genuinely welcoming of the Pacific step up. They're they're welcoming of the fact that we are increasing aid to their region. Uh, I think there's a few concerns. Firstly, there's the focus on infrastructure. Uh, There is a concern about uh, too great a focus on infrastructure. They welcome the infrastructure facility, but if it's at the expense of other aid um, parts of the budget, health, education, um, supporting actions against domestic violence, there is concern there. There's secondly a a, a bit of cynicism around the traps about why are we doing this. I think there's a view that um, uh, the government is responding to the interest of countries like China in the Pacific. So when I, for example, I was at a Pacific parliamentarians conference a couple of weeks ago and a few of the MPs were making jokes about, oh, to to increase Australia's interest in this project, we just need to let them know that China's interested in it, for example. So there's a cynicism, which um, I think there is some basis given this government has withdrawn from the Pacific until 2017-18. And thirdly, there's also just a profound, uh, profound despair almost that, um, how much of this uh, will actually come to pass given uh, climate change and everything else. That's an interesting comment on the point of China. And I think the the recent decision by the government to give, I think it was a $400 million loan to Papua New Guinea, um, correct me if I'm wrong there, was, was quite surprising. And I think there were comments that perhaps that was to combat the rise of Chinese uh, loans in Papua New Guinea. Um, where did you stand on that? Uh, well, uh, we weren't privy to the to the decision-making process, and we've been very clear that we support assistance to our Pacific neighbours, and we need to make sure that money will be used appropriately. But um, we we need to be the partner of choice for Pacific nations, and things like uh, that four hundred million dollar loan may be necessary to secure that. But I think it's certainly true to identify that there was a lot of commentary that. Uh, China was particularly interested in providing finance. So I think everything we've talked about so far indicates that that this is a region um, undergoing transformation, largely driven by climate change and the role of Australia um, in being a, a trusted partner and ally through that transformation can be unclear. Um, So on that point, we know that there is a refresh of the aid policy on the horizon. So what I mean, what should our aid policy look like and what do you hope to see in that refresh? Uh, well, and I've started speaking to the sector about this as well to, to 
to find out from them what they would like to have in the uh, the aid budget and the aid policy. First off, we have to lift the aid budget. I know the government's already ruled that out, but I think that has to be point number one. Point number two is, is I think we have to examine um, the, the various segments of the aid budget. For example, cutting all aid uh, from Pakistan and is, I think, criminal. I think it's absolutely criminal. That aid has allowed millions of Pakistani girls to go to school. Um, it's a crucial part of our fight against Islamic extremism. So from a pure national security point of view, let alone an altruism point of view, it's incredibly short-sighted and counterproductive. Uh, and thirdly, we have to look at not just the countries the aid is going to, but also how it's uh, the segments that it's delivered to. For example, um, I'm hearing stories about the withdrawal of aid from programs to support health and education and the profound impact that will have on societies. Uh, and then fourthly, it's how the aid budget is delivered. There seems to be an increasing reliance on private contractors to deliver that. And look, that makes sense in some cases, but I think it's partly a case that DFAT um, has been hollowed out after the integration of AusAid into the uh, 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 DFAT and the fact that they've lost a whole lot of capacity. Yeah, that's a really important point on on the managing contractors. I think at at last check, um, around 10% or less of the aid budget goes to NGOs um, and a large proportion of the remainder does go to international development contractors. Um, I don't know of the exact statistic, but it it is more than what goes to NGOs. Um, What's the danger of, of outsourcing so much of our aid program to development contractors? Well, the, the, the main danger is that you're getting less bang for buck, that um, you're, you're losing a share of the foreign aid budget to profit. Uh, and that's these, these companies have to make a profit, otherwise they're not, they won't exist. And in some cases, they, they do add value and, and they do are part of the, a reasonable part of the foreign aid ecosystem. So the key thing is the outsourcing occurring for the right reason or the wrong reason. And the wrong reason is if DFAT's unable to um, provide the, the capability to deliver the aid more directly, working with NGO partners rather than having a sort of middle middleman um, clipping a ticket, so to speak. So that's the main danger. The second one is obviously uh, that it gets bogged down in deliverables, that it gets bogged down in KPIs, it gets bogged down in... Um, just a focus on a short-term project delivery rather than um, what must be the two um, central goals of foreign aid, which is one, is to improve the lives of the nation receiving the aid, and secondly, to build and deepen the relationship between Australia and that country. So interspersing a, a private sector contractor in the middle of that can interfere with that. Yeah, okay. Now, I don't, I don't want to move off... Um the point of aid without first acknowledging your comments on Pakistan. And obviously that has got um, a lot of really negative press this week. I think a lot of uh, people in the sector broadly were probably quite shocked to learn that we essentially won't have an aid program in Pakistan in the near future. Um, And that is a consequence of the Pacific step up as it does represent a step down from other parts of the world. Um, So how do we manage that? How how do we manage the fact that that our aid to the Pacific is necessitating a reduction in aid to other parts of the world? Well, I uh, I would argue the Pacific step up does not necessitate that step down. That's a choice of this government to not increase the aid budget. If they increase the aid budget, they could do both. 
So I, I'm not sure how you, quite frankly, can manage that process if you don't increase the aid budget. Otherwise, you are doing as we are doing now, which is robbing Peter to pay Paul. And that is not just affecting our budget in um, uh, Pakistan. We'll look at what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa, which along with the Pacific is the epicentre of global poverty. Uh, if you look at what's happening with um, uh, a restriction and reduction in aid to some of those multilateral aid organisations, the Green Climate Fund is one example. Uh, so I, I, I would turn that question on its head and say we need to lift the budget so we can do both. Otherwise, um, we are seeing negative uh, implications for Australia's reputation in the world and it actually has an um, impact on our national security. Yeah, so let's talk about that national security justification because I think you've explained the altruistic argument of, of why we need to give aid. But from a national security perspective, um, what are the possible consequences of this reduction in aid to, say, Central Asia and the Middle East? Well, uh, the classic example is um, Islamic extremism. That's, that's uh, the, the most obvious one, but it's also just seeing more and more countries that are destabilised. Uh, and uh, uh, that has implications in, in, a glo in, in the global environment. Uh, one example is um, the Ebola outbreak uh, in Africa. One of the reasons that was able to be um, effectively contained, obviously I think it was something like 11,000 lives were tragically lost, but it could have been much, much worse. One of the reasons that was constrained was that there was a significant uh, number of aid workers on the ground already and there was a redirection of aid budgets to basically contain um, uh, that outbreak. Those outbreaks don't respect borders and with the rise of um, uh, uh, airborne travel, they don't respect um, even different continents. So from a national security point of view, you've got the rise of religious extremism, you've got health, outbreak, uh, health issues, you've got um, basically the world is a safer place when there are uh, more stable countries around the world where people... Um, uh, are healthier and live longer lives and uh, we have less destabilisation. And climate's another example of that where the, the, um, the CDF in his speech made the point that, um, hopefully I don't get the figures wrong, that 80 million people uh, are, 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 are facing movement because of crop failures. We're seeing a quarter of a billion people who could lose access to uh, drinking water. All those things contribute to global instability that will impact on Australia. And on that point, does that also require a different role of the ADF in our aid program? I mean, given the nexus of defence and development and the increasing um, convergence of the two, um, is our defence force um, playing the right role in the delivery of our aid program? Oh, look, I think they are, and I think they're quite focused on it. They're, they're well advanced on the government in this, this area. Uh, so, for example... Um, uh, uh, disaster relief, both in Australia and overseas. I think the figure I saw was that more Australians were deployed in disaster relief uh, during peak periods than were deployed to Afghanistan. So I think the ADF um, has a role there. I think they're pretty well configured to provide that assistance, but th they shouldn't be and can't be the, the front line of, of that. Okay, great. That's, that's, that's really interesting. So I guess bigger picture now... Um, You've been in your 
role um, about six months now, I believe, just just over um, in terms of these portfolios. What does success look like for you over the next few years? Um, and then perhaps we can talk about what success looks like at the next election. Well, I think uh, success looks like a couple of things. First, strong relationships with the sector. Um, it's very important that the sector understands that they have an ally in the Australian Labor Party and that we are supportive of what they do. Uh, the, the second um, measure of success is that we take to the next election a good, well-rounded aid policy. Um, obviously, that includes looking at what we can do around the levels of assistance, but secondly, how that assistance is delivered. I'm very focused on how do we improve the effectiveness of our aid budget, no matter what the actual level is. And I think we can do more there. Um, one area is how do we build capability within DFAT for example, one thing we've been particularly interested in is making it compulsory for um, uh, DFAT staff to rotate through the aid section of DFAT so that they get exposed to that. Because there's a view out there that um, the sort of aid part of DFAT sometimes is treated as the sort of um, the poorer cousin of the main DFAT activities. And I know that the Secretary of the Department um, is very focused on uh, rejecting that view and making sure that the culture of DFAT embraces aid delivery, but I think um, working on supporting that that cultural change so that all DFAT officials have exposure to that is very, very important. And thirdly, and I made reference to this in the active speech, looking at more innovative ways of um, using aid and leveraging off the private sector. We've got a huge uh, pool of private sector funding floating around the world that's interested in um, uh, assisting the development of other nations. The Gates Foundation is a classic example. How do we um, leverage Australia's official aid budget to support more of that? The first point you made there was that um, the sector should always know that it has an ally in the ALP and um, you definitely communicated that sentiment as well in your speech at the ACFRID conference. Um, what, what's your What's your perspective of the NGO sector as it as it currently stands, and and what do you think the support that the NGO sector requires um, of the government looks like? And just before I answer that question, I might just add a fourth point to what success looks like. We uh, so the fourth point would be that we've broadened the conversation within Australia about why we um, support foreign aid, and that um, we have a, a I think a stronger narrative and deeper communication with the Australian public. There's a lot of cynicism and scepticism out there about why we provide foreign aid. And one of my jobs is to be evangelical in explaining why we do this, not just for humanitarian reasons, not just because of diplomatic reasons, national security. We need to really push forward on all lines so that the political justification for aid is even stronger than it is now. So on uh, my impression of the, the NGO sector, I think it's, a sector that is incredibly passionate about what they do. Uh, I, I was at a the um, centenary of the um, Save the Children uh, last week, which is a, a, a fabulous affair uh, at, at the Australian War Memorial. And I, after hearing their speakers, including uh, Sonia Kush, who is the leader of the, their Syrian response, um, I said to them, I, you, you must have hearts of steel to deal in this area for so, so long. You just, the, the challenges, the horror that you see, as well as the potential to lift and improve people's lives um, is, 
almost bewildering to me. So first off, um, my impression is that the NGO sector is filled with people who uh, are incredibly passionate and compassionate and dedicated to doing something that I think is so fundamentally human, which is helping other human beings. And I think um, on the whole, the sector's working pretty well. I did challenge the sector in my ACFID speech that we need to get, the sector needs to get, uh, I think, a bit sharper politically, uh, that uh, we need to make the case stronger to win um, uh, domestic support for um, the aid budget. I think the fact that Minister Hawke, I think quite incorrectly, argued that the last election was a referendum on the aid budget, um, um, laid down threw down um, a challenge to the sector, which is how do you, uh, they can't be partisan because that undermines the, their work, but we have one and a half million Australians who um, provide, through their own pockets, provide aid over one and a half, over $1 billion a year. How do we mobilise them to make aid a vote determining issue? Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And certainly we've had a lot of feedback that aid has very rarely, if ever, been a vote-determining issue. Um, I, I, I can't recall an election where aid was the central um, debate in that election. It's never happened. And, and that's why um, Alex Hawke's argument was rubbish, to be frank. Um, uh, Labor lost the election and the coalition won the election for many reasons. The level of the foreign aid budget was not one of them. Um, but... So what I'm focused on is how do I work with the sector for them to drive all political parties, whether it's Labor, Liberal, National, Greens, whoever, to come up with sensible, compassionate and appropriate aid policies. And that's a challenge. And it's one where, for example, I had a delegation from MICA here on Monday and, and it was a great having people of faith. And that's an area where I'd like them in a respectful way to think about how do they challenge and support, and I think support's more more appropriate word than challenge, politicians of faith to work on the aid budget. And and this is something where this is not about, and I, I don't get involved in these debates about, well, if you're really a Christian, you'll do X or Y. I think that's um, the wrong argument and very counterproductive. But I think there is a role for people to say to uh, people of faith, well, you, 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 you sign up to... Um, these values, you profess a depth of values in this area. How do we support you to see the aid budget as part of that values? And that's something that I'm very keen to do in a nonpartisan way. Yeah, great. And, and just the other point that I want to pick up on there is your comment on the private sector. Um, so the role of the private sector in our aid program um, has definitely been elevated in recent years. And I think increasingly we are looking at how best to engage with, with the private sector. Um, I mean, what, what's your take on that um, and what role would you like to see the private sector have in our aid program? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think um, the private sector's got multiple roles. One is directly in delivering Australia's aid budget, which I think uh, there's, there's always been an element of that and I think there will always be an element of that and um, it, it makes sense in certain scenarios for that to occur. But the area I'm particularly excited about is development finance institutions um, uh, or DFIs. I think they've got a real power to leverage private sector finance. So DFIs globally have grown to $87 billion in a short amount of time. And they they leverage public sector and private sector money 
to really get good development outcomes in low and middle income countries. So I think they're powerful and we just need to get better at uh, mobilising sort of the philanthropic part of the private sector, such as the Gates Foundation and encourage other billionaires to, to participate in a giving pledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, for listeners that aren't familiar with those finance uh, organisations, can you just illustrate that with an example? Yeah, well, um, the, the, they're in multiple fronts. Uh, but, uh, for example, the uh, uh, World Bank's International Finance Corporation or the UK's Commonwealth Development Corporation, they're structured in such a way where they can make um, investments into uh, low-income countries in conjunction with some of the private sector finance to achieve really good income outcomes because there might be a project that uh, a government or governments might not feel comfortable funding in its entirety, but entirety, but they're also happy to um, work with the private sector. And another more classic example is the Global Fund, um, which um, is a combination of um, endowments from governments. The Australian government made a, a, relative, a, a recent pledge that also works with the Gates Foundation to raise, um, I think the latest target was something like $14 billion US to drive, uh, don't quite know that, I could be wrong, um, but it's multi-billion dollars uh, to, to drive the fight against TB, HIV and malaria. So that, that's an example of where you can leverage private and public sector money in a really constructive way. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so to close, the last question, I thought it was quite topical that um, the Chifley conference is this weekend, which looks at uh, labour and uh, the vision for Australia beyond 2022. Um, So just to sort of blue sky dream for a moment, what does it look like if in the next election labour is elected? What does our aid program start to look like? Oh Well, blue sky dreaming... um... With the, all, all the the usual caveats that we haven't decided our election policy and everything else, but for me personally, what I think would be a great outcome if Labor wins government at the next election is that first off we have an aid budget that is increasing. I think that's the first step. Secondly, we have an aid budget that um, is administered by our Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade that takes particular particular pride in driving international development where um, public servants are rotated through the development side of it and it's something where it's sought sought after and competed for within the department. Uh, Thirdly, we have an aid program where there's a strong emphasis on working and leveraging um, finance from both multilateral government organisations such as the World Bank uh, but also the private sector and an aid program that is really orientated towards advancing um, uh, human development. So not not being too focused, not overly focused on infrastructure development, as important as that is, but recognising there's no point Australia helping build a new road in a country if people are too sick to drive on it or if they're suffering domestic violence at home so they can't leave the home. And that's very important. I think we don't have the balance right at the moment between that investment in human capital and social capital as much as hard um, infrastructure capital. And I think that's really important that we get the balance right, that we put humans back at the centre of international development because ultimately it's about human development. Fantastic. Thanks for chatting to me, Pat. So there you have it, episode 57. If you also listen to our interview with Minister Alex Hawke, 
you might have started to pick up on some of the differences between the approaches to aid of our two major parties. It's not as simple as who wants to increase the aid budget. It's actually a lot more nuanced than that, with differences on things like health, education and infrastructure spending, approaches to climate change and development, and just general aid ideologies. As I've said in past episodes, this is a critical time to contribute your voice to the aid policy debate, so please get in touch via any of our social media channels and let us know what you thought of today's episode. I'll be doing a lot more coverage on the topic of aid and development policy in the coming months, and I always take your feedback on board, so please let me know if there's a particular person or topic that you'd like me to cover. Also, you might have noticed from our audio that some of our episodes are recorded in person and some are via Skype, so there can be some background noise occasionally. I do my best to record in person, but given the nature of our guests and also my own schedule, we can be all over the world and I try to not let that get in the way of a good episode. Okay, that's it for today. See you next week.